0: You know, the hardest video to get someone to do is a giving video. Nobody wants to talk about it. I think Jesus said something about that, too. But it's encouraging to hear, to hear our stories of how we love to be generous. And there's something that they, that Tom and Linda said in that video that, that just kind of spun my head around when I first heard it. And it was that when we give, we are the beneficiaries. Did you catch that? When we give, we are the beneficiaries. That's hard to kind of understand because... I have something, I give something. Afterwards, I would think that I had less than I had before I gave it away. But what they're saying is actually, we have more than we had before we gave it away. I want to explore that with you uh, just a little bit today. We're talking about imagining the impact you know, of, of, of being more generous on ourselves and on our city. Um, if week one, we talked about imagining the impact of being stewards. Week two, we talked about imagining the impact of blessing, being blessed, understanding that we're blessed to be a blessing. And today, last week uh, in the series, I want to talk a little bit about um, imagining the impact of investing in worship. Investing in worship. And I want to tell you a story today, and it's a bizarre story. Sometimes it's a little bit troubling, a little bit of of a scary story. It's uh, one that we don't tell too often. I think it's oftentimes misunderstood but it's really a worship story. And it's a story about a man who started his life as a boy, as a shepherd, and ended up being the king of Israel, David. And he knew a lot about worship. Worship was the center of his life. And it's also the story about the Jerusalem temple and how it ended up being built, where it was built. The temple uh, stands in Jerusalem today, and to this day it is built over a particular location. And this is the backstory. Uh, for that location, so I'd like to share the story with you and then draw out a few implications for our own investment in worship. Would you open up a Bible, please, to Second Samuel chapter twenty-four, uh, verses twenty-four to twenty-five? This is the very end of Second Samuel. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the black book out of the rack in front of you, please, and turn to page two hundred and sixty-three. And there you'll find Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. Verses 24 through 25. If you're able, will you stand with me? Let's honor our Savior by reading his word aloud together as an act of worship. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're hearing God's holy word. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. So the Lord answered his supplication for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read uh, never will. Please be seated. Well, I'm going to refer again to the Bible. You can leave it open if you if you like. But this is a story about grace. Uh, we get scared of this story because we miss that. It's a story about God's great grace. I hope I hope to help you see that uh, this morning. But inside of the greater story of grace, there's a plot line, and it's a justice plot line. That's really important too. It's not what the story is about, but it's there. Justice, and uh, we we see this at the beginning of the story. Because it begins with the anger of the Lord. In verse 1, we find out God is angry uh, about something. And for some of us, when we read that, we're like, okay, this is not a story for me because this is about a God I don't believe in. Right? I don't believe in an angry God. I I just want to caution us a little bit. Just give give me a second to to say that I'm not sure you can actually have love without anger right i mean we just think about that is isn't anger a part of 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 love um, in this sense we say that god is not exactly like us because he doesn't reflect our apathy but you you get angry for good reasons at times just think about things and people that you love uh, and anger is justifiable like maybe your girlfriend got passed over for a promotion at the at work just because of office politics. How do you feel about that? Or maybe your child comes home from school and you know she's got a bruise on her, and you find out she's been bullied. How do you, How do you feel about that? Uh, or you, you read in the news that there's a city that's got a minority population. That's the majority of that city, and their water has got lead in it, and it's going to damage the children that are living there. How do you, how do you feel about that? Or, you know, or anything. You read about human trafficking. You see it in, in these stories. You go, I, I'm just angry. That makes me angry. And you know what? It should. And why does it? Because that's not the world the way it's supposed to be. And you want the world to run the way it's supposed to be. You want the world to be good. And you know what? That's what the heart of God is like. The Bible teaches as a creation, God saw that it was good. That's his intent. It should be good. He loves this world into existence. And when it doesn't look the way it's supposed to be, guess what? God cares. There's no whatever in the heart of God. It's this wonderful anger. And so let's be careful. We shouldn't shy away from the wrath of God. It's actually an impulse towards justice. Justice is working towards the world being the way it's supposed to be. That's really what, what justice is. And the word for that in the Bible is often named shalom, is peace, welfare, well-being, shalom, wholeness, flourishing. That's what God wants. And so when that gets disturbed, when there's anything between the heart of God and your heart, God gets angry. And that's a good thing. So we, we, we see this immediately, the justice... The justice plot line is really an important part of grace. It's not opposed to grace. It's part of, of, of God's grace. So uh, the story begins, God's angry. Well, what's he's, what is he angry about? And what's he going to do about it? This triggers, uh, this. God is triggered, and the indication to the reader is God's about to intervene. God's about to do something to bring some justice. Well, uh, how's he going to intervene? Uh, we read, that, uh, in, that God incites the king, this is David, to take a census. Verse 2 says, go and count pe- the people. Go and count the people. Now, you, so what's what's with the census? If you've ever read this passage, you're kind of scratching your head like, what's wrong with a census? You know, we're Americans, we're taking one right now. And we take, the, every 10 years, we take a census and... It's not a problem. And there are good censuses, by the way, in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It's not always bad. But what seems to be happening here, this census has a purpose. And you know what the purpose is? Fighting. Who does David ask to take the census? Joab. You know who Joab is? That's his general. We read in the text that David is with Joab and the commanders of the army. He's in a war council. When he gets this idea. They start counting. You look at verse 9. You'll see he's counting soldiers. Not just soldiers. But potential soldiers. Conscripts. Those who are able to draw the sword. What's wrong with the census is. This is a time of peace. There's no reason to raise a national army. No reason to raise. uh, An army that could actually move beyond the borders of Israel. And threaten her neighbors. And that appears to be. What's happening? When a king and his leaders are sitting in a war council in a time of peace, they've only got one thing on their mind, and that is empire. This is a nation that is asked to get a king like all the other nations, because they want a king who will lead them to war, who will oppress their neighbors and kill them. And that's that's not peace, that's not what God wants particularly not what he wants for this nation, uh, uh, Israel, and Judah. We learned last week, I thought Pastor Aaron's sermon was absolutely brilliant. Uh, we learned that we're blessed to be a blessing, and that comes from them. Genesis 12 says, you know, you're blessed to bless all the families of the earth, not to kill them. So this is the problem in, in the background. It, it, it appears that they're preparing to attack their neighbors, Now, here's my question. Well, why, if that's wrong, would God, quote, incite David to take this census? Verse 1 gives us the answer. It tells us that this is a judgment against Israel. It's not just David who's sinning here. Verse 1 tells us that all of Israel is sinning. Now, all of Israel apparently has captured this militaristic spirit. By the way, you usually don't get a king who wants to go to war, if the people themselves don't want to go to war. The people themselves are putting political pressure in all likelihood on the King David and say, we're unified now, we're strong now, it's time to take advantage of that. Let's be like all the other nations and build an empire. Wouldn't that be a great idea? And and this is what's happening in the cities and villages and towns of Israel and Judah. God says, I'm going to ask the king to take a census because I'm going to bring judgment against, I'm actually going to mitigate the capacity of this nation to inflict harm on its neighbor. This is strong medicine. It's really scary stuff. But God is actually doing this for the sake of the neighbors around Israel. It's an act of judgment, this census. And here's what's interesting to me. This is a little bit deeper here, but hear me. God's judgment, in this case, is giving the people exactly what they want. God gives them what they want. They've been asking for a king who would lead them to war, and that's exactly what they're getting in this moment. By the way, the Bible tells us this is what God's judgment always is. It's simply giving us what we want. If you look at Romans chapter 1, this is where Paul the apostle explains this at length he's talking about sort of it's a spiritual anthropology and he says you know they didn't worship me anymore and therefore verse 24 god gave them up in their lust of their heart that word lust simply means strong desire he gave them over to this their strong desires verse 26 repeats it for this reason god gave them up to do creating passions it means to to their emotions god doesn't have to invent a judgment for for us he doesn't have to create some kind of punishment uh, actually sin is its own punishment Sin is getting what you want. And it's so interesting to me and a little sobering to think about uh, getting national leaders. The implication is that God gives Israel a national leader who does nothing but reflect their thoughts and desires. And that that in and of itself can be an act of judgment. This is really scary and sobering. I understand, but there's good news that comes, so, so, so hang in there with me. Because it, there is no war. Something stops, something disrupts this rush to war. Unexpectedly, there's an act of worship, and it happens in the heart of David. Uh, we see it in verse 10. There's a paragraph break in our text. There's a real transition here. This is the surprise of the story. Verse 10, but afterward, after he had done this, by the way, 10 months, 10 months Soldiers on whore horses go raiding through the towns and villages of Judah uh, and Israel, pulling men of, of military age out of the arms of their family and signing them up to go to battle. Ten months. And then afterward, something happens to David. He was stricken to the heart. Now, that's the really, really weak translation. We have great translation normally. That's not a good translation. It should say David's heart struck him. It's very active. And actually, the King James Version says David's heart smote him. That's kind of cool. But look, that word, that verb there uh, means to strike as with an object, to strike as with a weapon. It's a a military word. We could translate it, God's heart, I mean, David's heart attacked him. He had a spiritual heart attack in this moment. And go, wow, what is that all about? Well, he worships. We catch him in verse 10, worshiping, speaking to the Lord. Uh, He's worshiping. I have sinned, he says, greatly in what I've done. Oh, God, I have sinned. But now, oh, Lord, I pray to you. Take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. His heart is attacking him in worship. Worship becomes an opportunity for transformation for David. David. In this moment, it's not easy for him. His heart is saying to him, no, David, no. And he hears it. And he has the authenticity, vulnerability, courage to own it. And he says, Lord, I have have blown this. I am guilty. I have been foolish. That's what his heart is saying to him in this moment. I want to tell you, we don't talk to our hearts that way. Very often. In fact, we try to teach our hearts as modern people not to say things like that. Don't say that to yourself. You'll just add to your sense of shame. You know, you'll just kind of crush yourself under that innate sense of unworthiness that we all feel. So don't say to yourself this, this stuff. It sort of sounds mean. Don't let your heart ever speak to yourself that way. But look, what happens when we don't allow that? Well, just imagine for a second that you've done something wrong. Just Hypothetical. I mean, last night was Saturday night. Let's imagine you did something Saturday night that you regret. Let's say maybe you went to a party and you said something to somebody you wish you hadn't said and you're waking up Sunday morning and you're thinking, oh, shoot. What can you do about that? Well, I can think of a few things that I would do in a situation like that. And the first thing would be I would, I would sort of, uh, I would say to my, my heart, would say to myself, you know what, they, pro- they, they probably just misunderstood me It kind of covered over. Right? I don't know, they didn't really get what I was saying. Uh, or I could, I could say, you, you know what? They had it coming. Kind of like, do you ever say that, Jeff? Well, I wouldn't have said that if they hadn't done this, right? And so, like, that's rationalizing. Or I, or I can say, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal, and no one's going to remember this, you know, on Monday. Um, and that's minimizing it. So covering it over, rationalizing, minimizing. Like I'm really good at saying that stuff to my heart, and maybe some of you are as well. That's not David. That's not what's going on. In the moment of worship, there's a freedom in his heart to tell himself the truth, to say, no, that's not shalom. No, that's not what justice looks like. No. I find that really interesting. It's in the king's heart as he bows his knees to worship. If we don't have a heart that speaks to us in this way, there's a danger that we will never change, that we'll never grow, that we'll never become a better version of ourselves. If we don't let our hearts speak this way to ourselves, we won't ever become more better agents of justice in the world, which is I think what we all want. And the Bible calls this hardening of the heart. That's the term that the particularly in the, in the Samuel literature, calls it a hardening of the heart. David has a tender heart. He has a soft heart. And, and, and he does because he has this habit of worshiping. It's his practice. I mean, the guy is a band leader, right? He's a musician. He's the rock star, uh, the first millennium. He's written all these, the whole book of Psalms, is, you know, many of them are written by David. He's, he, he's a musician. He, he's a worship leader. He gets this. He seems to be worshiping through the night if the text is, Sort of to be taken literally. Verse 11 says, when David rose in the morning, so he's been worshiping, he's been saying this, we just get like cliff notes, and and then he gets up. Oh, by the way, if you want to double-click on those cliff notes and get a little bit more text, go to Psalm 51, because you get a great picture there of the kinds of things he was saying, like, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Do you notice this is about love? He's... this is not about shame. This is not about putting himself down. It's about elevating a God who loves him more than anything else. This is what worship will do. According to your abundant mercy. This is about grace. He says, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. He renew my heart in worship. Put a new spirit, a right spirit in me. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. He's finding joy in his worship. This is what kind of disrupts this rush towards war. It happens in the heart. Of the king and it does because of grace God's word reveals grace in David's heart it's he's already received grace right now I think now the narrator uh, tells us that, that Gad this prophet comes along not because Gad brings grace to David he's in my opinion he's already got it he's already there he's like receive the fullness of God's grace in that time of worship. But Gad comes along for those of us who are reading to, to, to just to see it. And so you're going to be able to see the grace in David's heart as David and Gad interact. Um, here's what I notice about the interaction with Gad. Remember, this is the, not the first time we've seen this video with David before. Do you remember like a prophet ever coming to see? David had this incident rather famous. He's sinner. He's a sinner. He's like, I love this about David because I could totally relate, Right. But, you know, back in the day, there was a thing with Bathsheba and Uriah, adultery, murder. We have kids in the room, so I can't tell these Bible stories. But it wasn't pretty. And David didn't acknowledge it. He didn't even seem to know that he was a sinner. And so God had to send this prophet, Nathan, who confronted him, who said no. This is very different. Did you notice this? Gad comes. He's sinned. Again, same thing, like still sinning. But Gad comes, and he's already reconciled. He's already experienced grace. He's already worshipped. Why? Because his heart said no to him this time. Isn't that interesting? Something has changed inside of David. He no longer needs a prophet. He no longer needs something coming from the outside in. Right? The prophet's external. Now he's got something internal. He no longer needs to be constrained or forced to his knees to reconcile with God. He's got something that's voluntary his own heart now what's in his heart that would do this the answer is grace here's how you see the grace Uh, gad comes along and he goes man this is really bad and uh, god's going to bring judgment on Israel, not just you, David. It seems like you kind of worked something out with the Lord here, and I don't quite get that, but, it's, but the, we still have a military spirit, and Israel's on a war footing. It's gonna be dangerous for the neighbors and for Israel spiritually, so God's gonna bring judgment. He's gonna try to limit the, the, the um, capacity of this nation to inflict harm on its neighbors, and there are one of three ways he could do that, and you have to choose, David, and this is kind of weird. Pick your poison, but so there, you know, there are three ways this can go down. Uh, three years of famine, three years of invasion, or three months of invasion, or three days of sickness. Any one of those three would have undermined their military capability. What does David say? Verse 14. Oh, I'm in great distress. Now this is empathy for the nation. He says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his, for his mercy is great. There it is. That's what's in his heart mercy. He's had a rich experience of mercy. This is a man who has grown up living with mercy. This is a man who knows that God says no only because God yearns to say yes. God's no is always subordinate to his yes. God's justice is always inside of his love. And that's grace. That's what's in his heart right now. So he chooses the health crisis. Why? Why? An economic crisis, which is what a famine would lead to, would put Israel in the hands of uh, traitors. A military crisis would put Israel in the hands of foreign soldiers. A health crisis puts you in nobody's hands but the Lord. And says, I, I want to I be in the Lord's hands in the midst even of judgment because I know what wins in the end is God's grace. It's God's mercy. That's where we should rush. God says Yes. Yes, I love you no matter what. Yes, I'm moving towards you to make peace with you and to bring peace through you. Yes, I love you even when you sin. I can do that because of my grace. Yes, even when you do things that don't reflect it, that don't reflect your true identity as a child of God, you belong to me, You're a daughter, your son of the great high king, the King Jesus. So David's changing. And by the way, this is what spiritual maturity is. It's not sinning less. It's depending more on grace. Did you get that? I hope you got that. Spiritual maturity is not sinning less. It's depending more on grace. And grace will actually inspire you to be more obedient, to be a better agent of justice in the world. And, then, and that's what we see happen next. Finally, the final movement here is that David, for David, grace leads to generosity. David wants to give. By the way, the New Testament word for generosity is the word grace. Charis is the Greek word. Can you hear any other English words that sound like charis or charis or charity? Grace means generosity. When you experience grace, you grow in generosity. It just happens right here to to David. This epidemic is approaching, and uh, it stops right at Jerusalem. The Lord stops the plague. I want you to make be really clear before anybody is generous, the Lord has already acted graciously. The, the plague stops at the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. Aruna was apparently one of the early occupants of, of Jerusalem. And a threshing floor was was a place. it was always, it was always on a, a hill or an open place because you'd want the wind to blow the, the, the chaff away from the wheat as they would stomp or drag. It kicks up this chaff, the wind blows it away, and there's the wheat. That's what a threshing floor is, a circular area. On a flat place, usually at the top of a hill, it's, it's wind exposure. And, of course, right above and north of the city of David's original footprint of Jerusalem is this mound, and you can go there today. It's Right now, it's where the temple is, and right where the altar of the temple is is on the threshing floor of Aruna. This is the backstory to why the temple is where it is because it's the place where God stops the plague, where the dying dies and life originates. That's what's happening here. It's it's an amazing story when when you think of it. And David gets it. And David wants to now worship here, build an altar, Gad says. David's going to his knees again. And he wants to give. He he tries to buy the supplies from Aruna. I'm not gonna take anything from Aruna. Look, man, I, you know I want to buy this. And Aruna says, "Oh no, no, no! I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell this to you." Aruna wants to give. Somehow he senses the beauty of this moment. Aruna says, "You know, I will sell you the land. I will sell you the threshing floor. I will sell you the the oxen that you can offer in your worship. And I will sell you the the, the dredges, the sledges that um you, that are wooden and you can burn for the fire." But David says. No, he's not gonna do that. And one of the most poignant sentences in the whole book of Samuel, he says, no, I will buy them from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. I wanna invest in this. I, want, I wanna pay, I, want, I wanna buy in to this grace thing. I want my heart to see me taking what the world around me tells me is the most important thing. I want my heart to see me say, no, here's what's the most important thing. God and God's grace. So he says, I, I want to invest in that and I want to give financially. So he pulls out of his pocket, or I don't know how it works, but he pulls out 50 shekels of silver for the altar. And then if you read Chronicles, a parallel account, 600 shekels of gold, uh, For the land around it. Let me uh, finally just offer, real quickly, if I can, uh, 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 a few implications. Three. I want to ask the question what does this bizarre story (laughs) mean for us here at UPC? And the first thing is this you can't buy God. Let's be really clear. the The plague is stopped before David gives. He's not giving so that the plague will stop, it's a response to God's grace. And sometimes we think, oh, Am I supposed to give, you know, to make good things happen in my life? No. Good things happen in your life, and you're grateful, and there's a sense of joy. And then you say, after that, I'd like like to give. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. God doesn't need our money, doesn't want our money. God is not trying to take from us. He's trying to give to us. He's trying to resource us. He's pouring grace, which means his generosity into our lives. That's the goal. That's the motive that God brings to our giving. And uh, just a couple of verses, you could see this uh, from the New Testament. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not, a, it's not a matter of works that we do anything. Our giving would be a work. So it's, it's, that's, not a, that's irrelevant to our salvation. First, we receive grace in Jesus Christ. We say yes to Jesus, and we receive the gift of salvation for free. So giving doesn't, by God, though he was rich, that's speaking of Jesus Christ, yet for your sakes, he became poor. He was a king in heaven. Uh, he came to suffer death on the cross so that by his poverty you might become rich and receive eternal life and salvation. You can't buy God. God's all in to get you. He's already bought you. Secondly, giving is worship. David brings money to the altar. Money itself becomes a a, a means of, of worship for David. Why? Because he's declaring To God, that God is worth more than anything else. Notice he's not tipping God, he's not dumping into the offering plate some chump change. This is what I can afford. He's bringing his best. Why? Because somehow he must perceive that God's grace is never free to God. It's free to us, never free to God. You've been bought with a price. The New Testament said the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ, the most valuable thing in the universe, has been given so that God can claim you in God's love. And and David wants to respond by honoring that grace, by honoring our Savior, uh, Jesus. That's why we give here. By the way, there's a little orange card in the rack. I oftentimes don't give physically, but I always try and grab that orange card and put it in because I I want to remind myself that my online giving is a part of my worship that happens here. So I would encourage you to you know, put something in the plate even if you're not bringing actual cash in worship. And there's a scene in Deuteronomy 26 where instructions for giving, giving to ancient Israel. And I want to just sh- read this passage to you. I'm Just brief, explore it a little bit more because it's a great story. Uh, the priests say, bring the first fruits of your harvest, Um, bring them in a basket set the basket at the priest's feet and when you do this is what you're supposed to say and notice the story that Israel is supposed to tell a wandering Aramean was my ancestor that's that's a way of referring to Abraham the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand that's a way of talking about the Exodus so now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you O Lord have given me and then Moses says you shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down so when we give what we're doing is we're rehearsing the great story um, of the death and resurrection of, of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And, and just as they were in the Old Testament, rehearsing the great story of God's redemption in their past. And he says, when you come, don't just bring the stuff and walk away. Tell the story. Rehearse it. I was a wandering Aramean. But now I'm in a land full of milk and honey. And we ought to do the same thing. You know, if you haven't personally experienced grace, I would tell you, don't give it, UPC. You're not ready yet. It's not about the money. God wants your heart. Once your heart has received the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, then, man, not only give, give generously and tell people. Tell yourself, first of all, but then others with the joy and, and your smile, this is why I'm giving, because I've been saved by God's love in Jesus Christ. And then the third implication is your gifts change your life. David gives not because he has to, but because he wants to. He's, he's, he's in this process of transformation, and he's investing his heart in grace. I'm all in with this grace thing. I'm all in with this greater story. Who's the beneficiary? It's not God. God doesn't need anything. It's, it's not Aruna Aruna's trying to give to. It's himself. David is the beneficiary. And this is what the New Testament calls us to do as well. Uh, Apostle Paul in two different verses. Give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, that word mind is the word heart in Greek. He says, your heart ought to tell you what to give. Your heart ought to make you actually want to give because to the extent there is grace in your heart, there will be generosity in your worship. So listen to your heart and then give cheerfully. And then it's, it's interesting, we have those who uh, sow um, bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. It's very biblical and uh, it also puts us right there at the threshing floor, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a runa, if you're a farmer, you know that, you know, spring, sowing that expensive seed is always an act of faith. Oh, my gosh, just a little, just a little. But he says, if you do that, when it comes to fall, the joy of the harvest will be small. It'll be good, but small. But sow bountifully, invest generously, and your joy will multiply. That's the principle of giving that Paul talks about when he's encouraging the Corinthians to be generous. The grace story becomes our story as we invest our financial resources in worship. Jesus says, your your heart will follow your wallet. So these are the three implications. You can't buy God. Giving is worship. Your gifts will change your life. I just want to finally ask you to imagine the impact of that in your life. What would that look like if you took another step towards that? You can actually see the impact in David, and I want to give you one more screen Because if you look closely at David's prayer, you can actually see Jesus showing up a 1,000 years too early. Listen to what David prays. I alone have sinned, and I alone have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me. If I've read this passage right, actually, David has already been forgiven by the time he prays this prayer. And Israel has actually done wickedly. And we, we see here is David stepping between the plague and the people of God as a good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. This is a picture of Jesus. This is exactly the prayer that Jesus prays for you. Oh God, don't let death touch them. Let it touch me that they might have abundant life, eternal life. Jesus is showing up in David as he kneels in worship on the threshing floor of Arunah. And he invites us. To experience the same. What could be greater? Imagine that. I think Tom and Linda said it really well when they said, when we give, we experience great joy. We are the true beneficiaries. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, oh, we thank you that your heart is so generous. We've already confessed that our hearts sometimes are stingy, but we just pray that you will immerse our hearts in your grace. Each Sunday as we come to worship and tell the good news to one another and share this great story, uh, we pray that it will begin to soften our hearts in wonderful ways and that your Holy Spirit will issue from our hearts a, a wellspring of generosity and that we might not only impact our own lives, but that uh, you will impact our city because we do it together in the name of Jesus. Amen.